Thank you, Paul. <clears throat> it's uh, really appropriate, isn't it, that we can gather on a Lord's Day at the beginning of our Missions Emphasis Month and celebrate the communion we have with Christ and one another in His work by observing the Lord's table together. And that's not an add-on to the service today. It's really a high point and a culmination because it has to do with worship. And so does missions. And so does evangelism. And they're all consummated in the whole concept of worship. I want to preach to you this morning from an entire chapter, if you will, or psalm in the Bible. It's only two verses. <laughs> it's the shortest psalm or chapter in the entire Bible. I was tempted to uh, recite it in Hebrew, but <laughs> then someone else would have to interpret it, you see. And so I won't do that. It's the first, uh, it was the first psalm or ch that I ever memorized in Hebrew and the first chapter of the Bible I'd ever memorized in the original languages. And, and uh, there's something to that. You begin to hear it uh, as it was closer to the originally spoken. Modern Hebrew is not the same in its pronunciation. We don't know exactly how it was pronounced, so we're having to guess. This morning, I would like to invite your attention to the Word of God, to our text. It's in your bulletin. If you didn't bring your Bible, I hope you get in the habit of bringing one. And uh, I'll be reading from the New International Version, the 84 uh, um, edition of it, uh, Psalm 117. I'd like you to listen carefully to the words of the living God through the psalmist. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples, for great is his love toward us and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you teach us by your spirit and your word from these brief verses so full of import for us and for your purpose in history and in creation as you draw us through the same uh, course of redemptive history and its flow that gives each of our lives its greater meaning. We pray that we might see you high and lifted up and be drawn to worship you in Christ. For we pray it in his name. Amen. I uh, sometimes, and you may as well hear, or perhaps we ourselves have found ourselves to say, oh, I don't go to church anymore. I don't get anything out of it. Ever heard that? <laughs> Maybe caught yourself saying that. Uh, if you haven't heard it, somebody sooner or later will probably say that. And it, it raises the question, why do we come to assemble together as God's people? Well, some would say, yeah, well, you know, I, I think that we should get something out of it. And it's true. We should be instructed by God's word. We should be edified and encouraged by one another, the scripture says, as we gather. Those are good reasons to gather. They're biblical reasons to gather, but, but they're not the real 
profoundly primary reason that we gather together on the Lord's day as God's people. That reason fundamentally is to worship our Redeemer and our God. The psalmist gives us that best reason of all, and in the text before us, he teaches us this truth, that God's gracious mercy and steadfast love beckon all to join in jubilant worship of him. That's the sermon. God's gracious mercy and steadfast love beckon all to join in jubilant worship of him. I'd like for us to look at why and how that's so from the text before us. First, God has shown himself to be praiseworthy. Verse 2, for uh, the Hebrew uh, particle there, the preposition, gives us the reason. This is why. For his love and his faithfulness. Now, when the Hebrew the uh, Hebrew psalm writer uses the term for love. He uses here the word, and you may have heard it elsewhere, chesed. And then when he uses the word faithfulness, he uses another word, mf. Now the interesting thing is that those two words have a semantic domain, sorry, that's just an orbit, an ellipse of meaning that overlap. They're not co they do not coincide exactly, but they do overlap. And you'll find that the term translated by the NIV love is translated by other versions as mercy, covenant mercy, as faithfulness, covenant faithfulness that won't ever, ever change. And at that point, it overlaps with the other word, MF, which is translated here as faithfulness, but elsewhere is translated as truth. It really is, is the concept of a foundation that is so firm and so strong, it is absolutely unmovable. Those two words, you see, reinforce each other. That's a common poetic form in Hebrew. His faithfulness and his absolute uh, covenant love and mercy, they go together. In Psalm 89, verse 14, we read, um, we read, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Get that? Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Yes, but righteousness and ju justice by themselves would destroy sinners. The psalmist goes on to say, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. So he extends himself to us through his love and his faithfulness. Same two Hebrew words as we have here. Covenant faithfulness. His absolute certainty of his truth. Notice, first of all, that it's God who initiates his covenant mercy, love, and faithfulness toward us. It's his chesed, verse 2, toward us. We are the ones who are the recipients of a God who takes the initiative toward us. He doesn't wait for us to blunder our way to him. Find me if you can, if you can't so much for you. That's not our God. 
he comes hunting. Jesus talked about the, the, uh, the one, the, the shepherd who went looking, leaving the 99 in the field, not in the fold, in the field. <laughs> the song is wrong. <laughs> it's in the field. He left them and went after the one who had wandered away. He seeks and saves. The Son of Man, Jesus said, has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And God's steadfast veracity is what undergirds our confidence in Him. Again, verse 2, His myth, His truth, His faithfulness in that sense endures forever into everlastingness. It isn't abrogated. It isn't superseded. It's not something that we enjoy now, but we don't know if He may change His mind. The God of the Quran can change his mind and abrogate his promises. The God of the Bible does not. Modern America is the most litigious country that the world has ever seen. We're always having lawsuits one against another. Soon somebody's suing somebody else. Even a small purchase, have you noticed, often comes with a contractual disclaimer in extensive legalese. <laughs> Individuals and corporations are always looking for a loophole, as it were, to escape from covenanted commitments that they've made. Not so, our God. We often have sung here, and I I've grown to love the song. It goes through my mind all week long sometimes. Your love never quits, never gives up, never runs out on me. God's love doesn't. And uh, in Psalm 119, verse 89, the psalmist says, Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Stands firm in the heavens. And in Hebrews uh, chapter 11, or, or rather um, uh, Hebrews chapter 6, we read that it is impossible for God to lie. And he goes on to say, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Now, I've spent years and years in the Navy. Some of you may have as well. And, uh, you know, say I've sailed the southern seas. It's getting hackneyed after a while. But, but I've dropped anchor in a lot of places. Sometimes you drop a sea anchor. You know what that is? When you pop it over the side, it doesn't go all the way to the bottom. It just sort of helps resist the, the wind blowing you over the surface a little bit. You're going to move with that sea anchor. In fact, if you don't have a really good anchor, you're going to drag it. That happened during a squall, a storm in St. Paul's Bay. It's another story. Paul's ship, the Apostle Paul, was shipwrecked there. It's recorded for us in the book of Acts. My ship was there, and in the midst of the, of the uh, uh, storm that rose up, we began to drag anchor. What do you do? Well, you have to get underway. Pull up the anchor and get out before, before you're driven onto the rocks like Paul's ship was uh, 2,000 years before. Your anchor has to hold or it doesn't do your ship any good. We have an anchor, says Paul, firm and secure. See, God's word is firm. And Christ is our anchor, says the writer of Hebrews. Uh, 
while it's true that God has shown himself to be praiseworthy because of his covenant love, because of his absolute trustworthiness, his veracity, so what? <laughs> so are there any implications for us? The answer, of course, is yes. The psalmist says, yes, they are. In fact, he leads off with it. God calls all humanity, all humanity, to worship him. Oh, well, he just calls Christians, maybe Jews. No, God calls all humanity. Atheists, agnostics included. God calls Hindus, Buddhists, and Muslims. God calls all humanity. Nominal Christians who are just go to church on Christmas and on Easter to show off your clothes. Uh, he calls all. Whether those people trust him and have a lo loving and living relationship with him in Christ or not, God nevertheless calls in a broad sense, in the general sense, he calls on, he calls on all humanity to offer to him the worship he deserves. The psalm begins and ends with praise the Lord. Praise the Lord whom? All nations, all the peoples. We enjoy talking about a sports team or a celebrity that we may admire or identify with. Uh, they will quickly fade and sooner or later let us down, everyone. God never does. Do you delight in honoring him with others who also do? The English word worship, worship comes from the word worship. Now in this country we address judges as your honor. We're rendering to them by that title uh, a, a phrase of honor. And God's the one, he says in his word, who raises up judges. And so there is a sense in which we are to provide honor, the Apostle Paul says, to all those to whom honor is due. But in the English courts, the judge is referred to even today as your worship. And they don't mean God. They mean your worth-ship. But, you see, worship really means giving the worth-ship owed to God and God alone. And when we come together to do that, we render him that which pleases him and for which he has originally made us. In this regard, God calls all the nations to acknowledge and worship him exclusively. The psalm begins, praise the Lord. Yes, it ends with praise the Lord. Yes, but there's a difference between the first praise the Lord and the last praise the Lord. See if you can hear it. The first one, hallelujah, Yahweh. The last one, hallelujah. You hear a difference? Yes, the F Yahweh, and not just hallelujah. It's praise, the definite article, the Lord. Now the definite article, the word the, can be used or not in front of, uh, uh, of uh, definite or of, uh, proper nouns names in particular. In the New Testament Greek, it's that way as well. And it doesn't necessarily have a particular significance. You have to look at the context to see. In this case, it does. In this case, it does. Do you know why? Because elsewhere in the Bible, almost, almost without exception, God deals with the nations under his creation name, Elohim. The creator. In the beginning, 
Elohim created the heavens and the earth. When the nations come and talk with uh, their representatives, talk with Abraham, they speak of Elohim. They have a notion of God. It's a plural noun, but when it's used by God, it's always referring to the singular. Shortened form, it's El. Well, that's what we would expect. El or Elohim when God calls on the nations because they're not part of his covenant people. And by his name Yahweh, he says to Moses, I had not yet made myself as fully known to them in terms of the redemption. That's what he means. Abraham knew Yahweh as Yahweh, but God had not revealed himself as Yahweh in the sense of the great I am that I am who would deliver his people. You see the Exodus events. The redemptive notion of deliverance had yet to be unfolded in Abraham's time and in Moses' time it had come. And God said, I hadn't revealed myself that way. The nations were outside that covenant. They were called goyim, a word which probably caused the rabbis to gag a bit, perhaps in some circles. It meant Gentiles. Gentiles. Non-Jews, people who are outside the covenant, beyond the boundary. God is calling on them to worship the Yahweh. They are pagans, most of them. They are polytheists, almost all of them. They have many gods. Oh, there's this God for this land and that God for that city. Here's a God for the hills and a God for the forest and a God for the sky and whatever, God for our household. And God says, no, praise Yahweh, the great delivering I am, unrivaled as the only and exclusive God. The import of that little definite article. And God in doing so, God in doing so, um, underscores what the Apostle Paul will later say in Romans chapter 1. He says, the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And again, in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul has these words in ch- chapter 17 as, uh, of Acts as he speaks on the Acropolis of Mars Hill. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord, the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath And everything else. From one man he made every nation of men. That they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them. And the exact places where they should live. God did this. So that men would seek him. And perhaps reach out for him. And find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring.
God calls on the nations to acknowledge and worship him. None are without excuse because his Godhead is evident in his creation. And finally, God calls especially all his people to render him praise. Verse 1 goes on to say, extol him all you peoples. Notice the S on the end in the English, the plural. It's not just people, it's peoples. Usually the, the people of the covenant, the people of God are referred to as the Jews. And here it's all the peoples. What does that imply? It implies that those who are outside are being brought in and together they belong unto the community of praise unto Almighty God, the delivering God, Yahweh. Um, in Psalm 47, we have a, a uh, preview of what we get more fully in the New Testament. Psalm 47, if I can find that here quickly, um, verses, seven, or verses 8 and 9, we read, God reigns over the nations, goyim, Gentiles. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations, Gentiles, assemble as the people of the God of Abraham the people, singular, of the God of Abraham. For the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. And yet, they're going to be incorporated into the New Testament covenant with the people of God in Romans chapter 15, uh, verses uh, uh, 7 through 12. We read these things. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Now listen carefully to to what is being quoted by Paul. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Again, it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, see if this is familiar. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. That's our text. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up the one who will rise over the nations, the Gentiles will hope in him. But that verse 11 is a direct quotation of our particular text. And now it's surrounded by others as well. What's the point? It's always been God's purpose to bring a great host that no one can count from every tribe and nation and people and tongue to gather around his throne and offer him worship. That's God's purpose. And it's not just missions, it's mission, capital M, God's mission in the world. Missions, plural, small m, uh, is what we do in response to his call, participating with him by his divine command and invitation that the world may be drawn to worship the one who deserves it. That, however, the Gentiles would worship God as Gentiles, without first undergoing circumcision, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, and 
thereby first becoming Israelites, that they could worship without having to do that, was a mystery before Christ came that was revealed only after Christ's resurrection. And so in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, we read from the Apostle Paul. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together of the promise in Christ Jesus. So we don't have to be circumcised if we're not Jews today in order to come to Jesus. I've talked with some of the Messianic Jews, you know, those who are Jews for Jesus and others who are trying to reach out in missions to uh, uh, Jewish people today and, and they themselves are, are Jewish and have come to recognize Jesus as their Messiah and as their Savior. And the, probably the number one um, obstacle that they encounter in sharing Christ with other Jews is this. You can't follow Jesus and be a Jew. You can't be one who acknowledges Jesus as Messiah and still be a Jew. Isn't it ironic? The book of Acts tells us that that's turned on its head. In the early church, the big question was, can these Gentiles be Christians without being Jews? Of course they're going to be a Jew, they assumed. Always had been that way. Always had to come to Israel's God by embracing <clears throat> the people of God. And that was through circumcision. But you see at the cross, Christ made the two one, as Paul tells us in the, in the letter to the Ephesians chapter 2. He says, some of you were near, not right there, but near, and some were far away, meaning the Gentiles. In the time of the apostles, in the time of Christ, the temple that, had, that was there, the third temple as it's called, was Herod's temple. And it had added a court of the Gentiles. That wasn't part of the Old Testament uh, temple of Solomon and, uh, and of Zerubbabel. But here's a court specifically for the Gentiles, and they can come that close and no farther. Then you had the court of the women. That's not in Moses' uh, stipulations either. And they could come a little farther if they were Jewish women, but then they had to stop, and then there's a the court of the men. And, and then inside that you had where the priests would go and offer the sacrifices, but originally, the uh, believers would come into that courtyard, that very courtyard where the, where the uh, sacrifices were offered. They put their hands on the animal as their substitute, confessed their sins over the animal that would then die as a, as a symbol of a, of a substitutionary atonement for them. And every time they had to do it again, it indicated, as the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us, that the previous ones weren't enough. They weren't enough. They weren't enough. Christ comes and he does it once. He offers his, himself. 
and he breaks down the barrier. When he dies, the curtain is torn in two that divided the holy place from which, where only the priest could go from the holy of holies where only the high priest could go and only once a year after offering, uh, making atonement for the people and for himself. And now, you see, those who are near can come all the way in and those who are far away can also come all the way to the presence of God because we have no longer a high priest that dies, a high priest that can fail us. We have an high priest who can be touched by the feelings of our infirmity because he was tempted in like manner as we have yet without sin. And the Bible tells us that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So today we can come. The era of missions, oh, it's always been the era of missions. But the era of the new age of missions, what the Bible calls the last days, meaning from the coming, the coming of Christ and the pouring out of his spirit at Pentecost, all the way to the coming again of Christ. Those are the last days. May it have a build up and a crescendo just before the coming of Christ? Yes, it may. I think will. But these are all the last days. And in these last days, we are made together, one people of God, redeemed in spite of our sin. None of us come saying, God, at least I've got this bauble I can offer you. And you can do the rest. Bauble. And that's stained. We need to come with empty hands. Because the Bible says, all have sinned. Come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this is the one who not only invites us to himself, embraces us in his son, makes us holy as he is holy, but then also privileges us by sending us out to invite others to join in the worship, glad worship of our king who saved us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth that your mercy and steadfast love in your graciousness, beckons us, beckons all to join together in jubilant worship of you. And we would pray, O oh Lord, that our worship may be made acceptable to you by your Spirit's atoning work, by his applying to our lives that which Christ has done. And may we worship you with joy and be transformed because you, O oh Lord, well within us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our worship will continue, um, but we have the privilege now to do it in a very tangible way. Um, as we, as the Lord has blessed us, we in turn give back to Him. As a scripture I read before our prayer, you know, we have come here and we don't boast. We dare not boast because it's not of us that anything has been given to, 
to us. We don't come here of our own um, because of our decision, but because the Lord has drawn us to himself. And so now he calls us to worship him in this way. And um, we do so um, with gladness. And as the basket comes by you, it is good to smile. It's good to give with joy. May your heart well up with thanks. Offer a prayer of thanks to the Lord that he has called you unto himself. And that we have a joy in giving back to him and something that he could take and use and sanctify and do great things with. Let us give to the Lord. if the elders and those who will assist them today would come at this time as we prepare the elements for the giving and receiving of the bread and wine according to Christ's commandment. The elements are not transformed physiologically or physically. They do not become the physical body and blood of Christ. But neither is this table a mere memorial. No, Christ is present, really, spiritually, in the giving and receiving of bread and wine, according to Christ's commandment. He is here. He does sanctify these elements in accordance with his instructions. So I would read to you the words of institution. They're familiar to you. From uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 23, Paul writes... For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is not the table of Christ Community Church or of the Presbyterian Church in America of which CCC is a part. This is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. It belongs to him and to those who are his and to none other. He warns about that. So I would ask that if you have not come to a profession of faith in Christ, acknowledging that Jesus died on that cross as your substitute and Savior to do what you could not do in the least for yourself, and that he did it all and is now your risen and living Lord of your life, reigning in heaven and by his Spirit in your heart, that you are his child by covenant if you do not have that faith in him. If you have not been received into membership in a gospel teaching church, if you have not received the sign and seal of admission into the community of God's people, not circumcision, baptism, the New Testament sign and seal of the covenant of grace. If you've not ever done that, I would ask that you refrain. It might be a good time to talk with me after the service, if you'd like, or one of the elders. We'd be happy to do that. For children who have not yet presented themselves to the session, not yet been of age to do that, and have not come to be able to be examined, that they have come to a place of recognizing, discerning the body of Christ, I would ask parents that you restrain them from taking the elements, the bread and the wine. Um, we are told to examine ourselves. And until we're of years of discretion, that, as, as the uh, Confession of Faith puts it, uh, until we're of years of discretion to be able to do that, uh, it's better to refrain. But if you have made your commitment to Christ. And your membership may not be in this church. That's all right. CCC is not the whole, the body of Christ. It's much bigger than we are, for which I'm very, very grateful, especially looking around this morning. But uh, we're part of something far bigger than we are. And if you're a member of a gospel teaching church somewhere else, baptized member, you're trusting Christ alone as your salvation, this table is for you. Only the worthy participants, we're told. Yes. How do we take worthily? How unworthily? I'll tell you how we do it unworthily. By saying, I'm a pretty good guy. I think I'm worthy. That's an absolute giveaway that you're not in God's eyes. The only way we can have any worthiness is Christ's worthiness. And so we come with empty hands and open arms. 
Say, Lord, do for me what I cannot do. And I receive from you these tokens that your love for me never quits. And by covenant, it's a meal. You've got to understand the context of the ancient Semitic cultures in which covenant meals first sprang up. If someone came under your roof and you offered them hospitality in a meal, you would die. Lay down your own life before you would allow any harm to come to them while they're under your roof. And God says, you're under mine. I've spread the corner of my garment over you. You're mine by covenant and I'll never let you go. You're caught up in the embrace between the Father and the Son. And by covenant, you're stuck. And it's a good stuck. Aren't you glad?